poetry reading framed the On Being gathering this year. And we are so happy now to share these slices of beauty, elation, and contemplation with you. Here's how Marilyn Nelson opened our Sunday morning. Uh, good, 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 good morning. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to read you some poems. Pardon? <laughs> I thought I would read uh, a couple of longish poems and a couple of short poems. I'm going to start with one of the longish poems. Um, and um, I think what I have to say about it, I write narratives, and uh, that's what this is. Uh, it has three voices. One is my voice. One is the voice of a taxi driver. And one is the voice of my muse. And um, I'll change my voice so that you can recognize the changes. It's called Faster Than Light, and I decided to read it uh, last night, late last night, after um, meeting my housemate, Natalie, and talking about physics. So, okay. <laughs> Faster Than Light. I didn't want to pay to park my car, so I took a taxi to the train station. New London is an hour's drive away, but it was the best solution I could find. After 10 miles or so of idle chat, in which my occupation was confessed, the driver said he was a physicist. As a hobby, he said, driving was his trade. Still struggling to connect my seatbelt clasp, I asked his opinion of an article I'd skimmed last weekend in the New York Times about a man who researches time travel. He made that pst Parisian cabbies make in early August when Americans try to parlay avec them at rush hour. <laughs> He gave me a long, over-the-shoulder glare, squeezed the steering wheel, and hit the gas. He said, he's wrong. The one thing that would work is to fly faster than the speed of light through a wormhole. The gravitational field is full of holes. You only have to find one and be pulled by metagravitational force. For energy, you could use compressed song, or words to that effect. My memory isn't what it was 10 minutes ago. <laughs> he drove with 10 white knuckles on the wheel, his pinched blue right eye looking back at me as we took the curves on two screaming tires. Faster than light travel, that's the secret. The government's been on to this for years. There are other planets waiting to be explored. This one's almost used up. It's time to move. We won't take people who don't measure up, our intellectual inferiors. Let them inherit the Earth. We'll take the skies. I still couldn't figure out the seatbelt catch. <laughs> The poor and ignorant population grows so quickly. 
What? Deny the right to life? There's a fucking holocaust of the unborn. But some races and cultures lack the gift of scientific knowledge. It's the dross of their stupidity which weighs us down and holds us back. Faster than light travel, faster than light travel, the only way. We hurtled down the turnpike, passing trucks faster than light, and cars full of people driving hell-bent to get to work on time faster than light travel. That's the ticket. Finally, we pulled up at the train station. I'd given up on fastening my seatbelt. <laughs> Stupid contraption, trusting to the universe to grant me more good luck. I scrambled out. We wished each other well. My tip was generous, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Faster than light, he yelled, late for his next pickup, zooming off, talking to his phone. My cup brimmed over with Psalm 23. Buoyancies sometimes stronger than gravity. I wheeled my luggage down the crowded train, then found a seat and opened my magazine. Some influence is affecting a space probe, I read, which baffles scientists. It will rewrite the laws of physics and astronomy when scientists understand and name that force. The plan was for Pioneer 10 to arrive some million years from now at some far place. In case of alien contact, there's a plaque of a human couple and a celestial map showing Earth with a spear held to her head. Thirty years beyond its launch, it's past Pluto, the farthest planet orbiting our sun, in empty space seven billion miles from Earth. The article said current theories can't explain what's causing the decrease in Pioneer's speed. It's almost imperceptible, a mere eight miles per hour per century. But Pioneer 10 is being pulled back to the sun. I closed my eyes several million years from now as if a species on the brink of extinguishing itself said to a future species, remember me, the species which perfected genocide? Will science ever discover humility? Right, fool. You want to say on guard to science? Why stop there? Why don't you attack knowledge while you're at it? And how about progress? Ain't that a bit ambitious, Miss William Blake? <laughs> what was that voice? Listen, Marilyn, listen, as saints once listened, and, of course, the mad. I looked around. The other passengers were busy with laptops, breakfasts, books. And where does it get off? Accusing me? Ambition? Why, I've surpassed every fantasy I had. Would I presume to badmouth our attempt to cheat death? My poems, a handful of dust trying to get back to supernova. Like every longing, everything alive. 
but ambition wants the immortality of a members-only country club Valhalla, an eternal summit meeting of great names. Millions of light years into the future, that immortality ambition breeds with serendipity. What will it mean? Our poetry, our books, our language, dust of words never again to be spoken. I wonder what will last millions of years, a stone, a nuclear waste disposal site? Will Homo sapiens evolve or die? Will wiser beings populate our Earth? We're dying faster than the speed of light, our fame forgettable. Will good deeds, too, vanish like molecules of exhaled breath to be recycled by the universe? Girl, get on back to the raft. When you try to think, the breeze between your ears nearly blows me away. <laughs> my muse again. So much for my magazine. I closed its pages and began to drift. As if you wasn't drifting all along. If you had the good sense God promised the carrot, you'd know that what lasts is the hush of space, the hiss of orbit, and the hum of stars. If you could launch a space probe, I wondered, would you take up my name engraved in gold, my puny thoughts, my hopes for the future? And if I knew I'd be anonymous, would I publish? Would I write poems at all? During the countdown of the anonymous, you'd be trying to scratch your initials on the hull. <laughs> well, muse of disposable poetry, at least I'm not producing toxic waste. But poets who want immortality, poets who are ambitious, is it wrong to want life after our deaths for our songs? Leave immortality to cancer cells. They don't know when to stop. Just when they reach the point of no return, the body dies and the cancer is returned to genesis. Genes are programmed to reproduce and die, and poetry to stick on a synapse, lucky to be a line remembered wrong. Your work projected into the future is pulled back to earth by dark energy, the glue which binds the cosmos together. From Stamford, I no longer traveled alone. My seatmate fast-talked into his cell phone. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I thought I'd read two, maybe just, yeah, two 
little poems and then one that's a little bit longer, but it's not as long as that one. This is called Crows. What if to taste and see, to notice things, to stand each is up against emptiness for a moment or an eternity. Images collected in consciousness like a tree alone on the horizon is the main reason we're on the planet. The food's here of the first crow to arrive. Number, numbers two and three at a safe distance, then approaching the hand-created taste of leftover coconut macaroons, the instant sparks in the Earth's awareness. And uh, the other little poem I wanted to read, uh, a couple of years ago, Terence Hayes, a wonderfully talented and extraordinarily handsome poet, uh, invented a form, a poetic form, which he calls the golden shovel. It's, uh, the title is taken from a great poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, Seven at the Golden Shovel. It's the We Real Cool poem. And Terence's poem uses lines from Gwendolyn Brooks as the end words for his poem, and then he writes lines leading up to the Gwendolyn Brooks words. And there's an anthology that came out recently of golden shovel poems. It's become a very popular form. And um, this is a golden shovel poem uh, based on a line from Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks' line is, live not for battles won. Live not for the end of the song. Live in the along. Okay, my poem is called Bird Feeder. Approaching 70, she learns to live at last. She realizes she has not accomplished half of what she struggled for that she surrendered too many battles and seldom celebrated those she won. Approaching 70, she learns to live without ambition, a calm lake face, not a train bound for success and glory. For the first time, she relaxes her hands on the controls, leans back to watch the coming end. Asked, She'd tell you her life is made out of the things she didn't do as much as the things she did do. Did she sing a love song? Approaching 70, she learns to live without wanting much more than the light in the catbird window seat where watching the voracious fist-sized tweets, she hums along. Thanks. Thank you. I'm going to end with uh, another narrative. 
I think of it as a narrative poem, uh, and, but its, uh, its protagonist is a young child in about second grade, and uh, it's, it will be a text for a picture book. Um, so I don't, we haven't yet, we've invited an illustrator. I hope he will take it, um, but it'll take a while for the illustrations to be done. It's about a little girl whose name is Lubaya, which means young lioness in Swahili. Uh, she has an older brother whose name is Jelani, which means mighty in Swahili. And I'm reading this because of the uh, title of Seth's uh, interview uh, today. So uh, this is called Lubaya's Quiet Roar. Lubaya hardly ever raises her hand, even when she knows the right answer. She watches the hand-waving picked kids stand in the light of classroom admiration. When captains choose kids to play on their teams, Lubaya gets picked number eight or nine. Her teammates shout, Luby, but she's lost in dreams. She looks at the ground and shrugs when the other team wins. At home, she notices things, the way her dad's jaw clenches as he watches the news, how he shakes his head, rolls his eyes at her mom, the way her mom's eyes crinkle when she smiles. After homework, dinner, and chores, sometimes she and Jelani play video games. Jelani wins, when Lobaya gets bored. Then she goes to her quiet place behind the recliner. She draws on the backs of old posters left from a protest march a while ago. She draws her friends Madison and Skylar dressed in their prettiest birthday party clothes. She draws a snowman on a towel at the beach. She draws Elijah, Jaden, and Jose standing on ladders to paint a rainbow. She draws an Egyptian bird, a hip-hop frog. She sits listening and drawing, happily alone. Mom, Dad, Jelani, and the people on TV fill the air with talk. She catches words and writes down snatches of what she overhears. White, great, black, hate, fake, hope, stop, race, not seize. Dad says, Jelani's growing into his strong name. He's only 12, but he's getting mighty. With a mind like his, the boy's bound to be a leader. Mom says, Lubaya's an introvert, but mark my words, William, our lioness will roar. And when she does, get back. <laughs> Jelani says, her roar is a meow. <laughs> Breaking news, the evening shatters like a dropped glass. Mom cries, oh my God, not again. She and Dad spring to their feet. Dad says a swear. Lubaya comes out of her niche. Mom says, 
I had hoped the time for marching was past. As soon as we get something organized, we'll march again. Labaya, can we have those old posters back? That's why the speakers, the spotlighted ones, are carrying posters of Lubaya's drawings. Everyone comments on how great they are, how beautifully they speak truth. Lubaya's roar may not be loud, but a quiet roar can change history. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.